Are you ready to examine the time of the signs? Well, we began some weeks ago looking at the rebirth, the miraculous rebirth of the nation of Israel. We noted that sometime after Israel became a nation again, there was going to be a radical defection from truth within the church. And we looked at the church of the Laodiceans as the final age of church history. Now we noted when the church is fully defected or largely defected from truth, uh, the Lord is going to say, as was said to John the Beloved, come up here. And we looked at the rapture of the church. Now what follows the rapture of the church is our subject tonight. Now, there are portions of scripture and there are sermons that will allow us to leave feeling all happy clappy. This ain't one of them. We're going to cover Revelation 6 through 19. So get your pillow out. It'll be a flyover. We're not going to be here for the whole thing. or we're not going to. Well, no, we're not going to be here for the whole thing. So that's good news. Now, there are many things in Scripture that we love and even long for, but our subject tonight is not one of those. But the good part about the subject tonight is we're not going to be here. We are going to be present with the Lord. This follows the rapture of the church. Now, a lot of people ask the question, <clears throat> excuse me, is there a gap between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation? And most likely there is. There's nothing definitive in Scripture that says either way, but I think it's safe to assume that when the world is reeling from the mass disappearance of hopefully millions and millions of Christians and the restructuring of nations has to take place and a world ruler has to rise to power, it's going to take some time. Now, our subject tonight is going to address several labels that are uh, attributed to it. And that is it's called the tribulation. It's called the great tribulation. It's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. It's known as the time of Jacob's trouble and also the 70th week of Daniel. Now some of these labels refer to the whole of the tribulation, others to portions of it or the final 42 months or 1260 days. Some like to assign the label the great tribulation to that portion. <clears throat> but whatever phrase is being used and whatever portion of the tribulation is being referred to, we recognize we're talking about a future event. Something that has not happened in the past. There's nothing like it, nothing historical that, can, that it can be compared to. Now, during this tribulation time, God is going to accomplish two things that are part of his plan. One, he's going to complete the discipline of the nation of Israel. And two, he's going to judge and punish through his wrath the Christ-rejecting, unbelieving, godless inhabitants of the earth. Now, the last of the descriptive phrases we use to describe this time period, the 70th week of Daniel, in and of itself, proves the necessity of a pre-tribulation rapture. It reminds us that God has unfinished business with his chosen people, the Jews, and since the time of the Gentiles includes all of church history, the church age has to end for the 70th week of Daniel to begin. I'll wait for you to say amen to that. Amen. Now, in Daniel 9.24, Daniel was told 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, the angel Gabriel is communicating with Daniel, and he tells them there are six important purposes that God is going to accomplish during the period of the 70 weeks, most of them being in the 70th. One, to finish the transgression. Two, to put an end to sin. Three, to atone for iniquity. Who does that? Jesus. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, the first of these things, the first three, deal with the sins of Israel and God bringing their sinful rebellion to an end, reconciling them through the only means of reconciliation, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the final three things address the fulfillment of all of God's prophetic promises, yet unfulfilled, given to the nation of Israel. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Isn't that going to be awesome? Yeah. 
But we live in a place where righteousness dwells exclusively. He's going to seal up visions and prophecies, meaning he's going to fulfill everything that was written about the nation of Israel. He's going to bring them to fruition, and he's going to anoint a most holy place. Now, that could be the temple of the millennium, or it could be in reference to the new Jerusalem. Either way, it's going to happen. Amen? Now, alongside completing his discipline of the nation of Israel via the Great Tribulation, God is also going to judge the unbelieving, godless inhabitants of the earth, commonly referred to in Revelation as the earth dwellers or those who dwell on the earth. Now, in Revelation 15, we've got a lot of scripture we're going to read together tonight, but it never returns void, right? So there will at least be something of value in our time tonight. We're going to read the Bible. Amen. Revelation 15, 1-4 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is what? Complete. Complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass, mingled with fire, and those who have victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been what? Manifested. They have been brought to completion or fulfillment. Now, in the Great Tribulation, God is going to complete His judgment of this world. Now, there's going to be, interestingly, in that time, a massive Great Awakening, so to speak, and there will be those who have victory over the beast, as we just read. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. Now, in Daniel 9.24, that we read a moment ago, we found that 70 weeks were determined for Daniel's people and Holy City. Now, the Hebrew word for determined means to cut off. And that means there is a cutoff point after the 70 weeks expire. It could also be translated as to be settled or to mark out. Now, listen, in spite of what many interpret the 70th week of Daniel, 70 weeks of Daniel to mean, it doesn't mean 69 weeks will be fulfilled concerning Daniel and his people, and the holy city, and then the church is going to replace Israel. That's not what it means. Nor does it mean the first 69 weeks of sevens, or periods of sevens, are going to be literal, and then the 70th is going to be allegorical. Gabriel says, Daniel, in answer to your supplication regarding the people, your people, there is marked out a time period and a cutoff point of 70 weeks for them. Now, when we think of a week, we think of seven days. In Daniel's day, when the Jews heard the word Shabuan, it would mean simply a period of sevens. It could mean days, it could mean weeks, it could mean years. Now, in Leviticus 25, 1-5, we find a foundation for this, where the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. This is a sabbatical year. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of what? Rest for the land. Six years of planting and harvesting, and then a year of letting the land rest, or a week of years, a period of seven years. Now, it was this sabbatical cycle that the Jews violated, and Jeremiah and others were led into the 70-year captivity in Babylon because of that violation. Seventy years were determined uh, for Daniel's people to be in captivity for violating the sabbatical year for 490 years. That was during the Babylonian captivity that Daniel received his four visions and the message delivered by, Dan, by Gabriel rather that 70 periods of seven were determined for Daniel's people and holy city. So again, Daniel would well understand 
because he was experiencing what uh, the consequences were for disobeying the sabbatical year under the uh, Babylonian captivity. And he and others would readily understand 77-year periods were what was in view. Now, as we sit here today, 69 of the 77-year periods have been fulfilled. Now, 70 minus 69. I'll give you a minute to get out your pocket calculator. 60 minus 79 is, I mean, 70 minus 69 is what? Is one. How many weeks are left? One. There's just one. Now listen to what Daniel 9.27 says. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for how long? One week. One, one seven-year period. But in the middle of the week, or at the midpoint of the tribulation, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, the he of Daniel 9.27 is the first beast of Revelation chapter 13. He establishes a seven-year covenant with Daniel's people and the holy city, and at the midpoint of the tribulation, he breaks that covenant, brings an end to the reestablished sacrifices and offerings in the rebuilt temple, and commits what Jesus referred to as the abomination of desolation. Are you with me? Yes. Now, I'm sure most of us are familiar to some degree with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which are introduced to us at the breaking of the seven seals in Revelation 6. In Revelation 6, 2, we're told, John speaking, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, many see this because of the color of the rider's mount to be Jesus, and we have to remember that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's not afraid to ride a white horse or to have his servant ride a white horse either. This is not Jesus. It's not possible for it to be Jesus. We do know when Jesus is coming back, and we do know we're coming with him. He's all by himself here. Now, in the Septuagint, we're told here he has a bow but no arrows. Now, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 9, 13 to 16, we find the same word, translated as bow in our text, when God makes mention of the rainbow or the bow that he hung in the sky. And the bow symbolized that God had made a covenant with the earth that he would never bring rain upon the earth again to the degree that it would flood the whole planet. So this establishes that a bow can be symbolic of a covenant. And the first horseman of the four of the apocalypse ride on to the scene with a covenant in hand. He rides in with just a bow and no munitions or arrows. Now, we might say that he conquers the world with diplomacy. If you read, <clears throat> excuse me, Daniel chapter 11, you'll find quite a lengthy description of the Antichrist, including his flattery, which means smooth, slippery speech. And good thing we don't have any politicians like that today. Now, he's going to conquer the world with diplomacy. And the words conquering and conquer in Revelation 6 to mean to subdue or bring into submission. He's going to bring the world into submission to his covenant that he initiates with Daniel's people in Holy City for the duration of seven years, or the 70th week of Daniel. Now the question is, how does the world arrive in such a state that a character who's had movies made about him, whose name is synonymous with evil, and antichrist is the term most people have heard, but how is he not recognized right away by the Jews and many unbelieving Gentiles around the world? Well, the answer is 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-4. We're still in the introduction, by the way. We'll get to the message sometime later. Now, brethren, Paul writes, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our what? gathering together to him. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of Christ's coming, will not come unless the falling away comes what? First, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, 
or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, the word gathering there is the Greek term episynagogy, and it means to gather together in one place. It can mean the complete collection. And what's implied there is that there is going to be a complete collection of saints, including the dead in Christ, gathered together in heaven. Now, the falling away of the Greek term apostasia, or uh, many pronounce it uh, apostasia, uh, apostasia is defined as a defection from truth. Now, another form of the word can mean to divorce. It can also be translated as to repudiate. Now, let me ask you a question. Has the church largely defected from truth today? Is the word of God being repudiated, mean being refused to be accepted? Are many churches today divorcing themselves from the moral statutes of the word of God? Well, then the world is ready to be deceived by the rider on the white horse. Now, when the beast sits in the most holy place, showing himself that he is God, which is, as I said, the abomination of desolation, Jesus said to the Jews in Jerusalem, run and pray that your flight is not in winter or that the weather is favorable or that you are pregnant. That would be traumatic, obviously, for a pregnant woman. For what happened that's a pregnant woman? Thank you. Just a woman. That's not written to men, because men can't get pregnant. Let me just slip that in under the radar tonight. For what happens next is a series of events unprecedented in human history. And those days are called the great and terrible day of the Lord, or the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah coined that phrase in 30 verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but... He shall be what? Saved. Saved out of it. Now, the great tribulation is the whole tribulation. And the whole tribulation is the 70th week of Daniel. And Daniel begins with the rise of the Antichrist to power, which cannot happen until the church is removed. We will not be here for any portion of the tribulation. We cannot be, that would be, a doctrinal mess. It just is inconsistent with Scripture that the church will go through any portion, even one day or one hour of the tribulation. I would say thank you, Jesus, or something right there. Now, one of the most common arguments I hear from people who say the church is going to go through the great tribulation because Jesus said in John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You can't be of good cheer if you're going through the tribulation. And we'll prove why in a few moments. Now, the word actually means pressures, the word tribulation. It doesn't mean you're going through the great tribulation, because that's for Daniel's people and the holy city. It's not for the church. After all, the church was promised, the church of Philadelphia, in Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon what? The whole world. That's the, the tribulation. To test those who dwell on the earth. We're not earth dwellers as a church. We are citizens of another city, a city whose builder and maker is God. Amen? Now, Jesus said in John 15, 19, that we as born-again Christians are not of the world. And therefore, we can take comfort in the fact that the church cannot be here. I want to drive that home tonight during the Great Tribulation. So why is it called these things? Why is it called the great and terrible day of the Lord? Why is it called the time of Jacob's trouble? Why is it called the time of testing of all who dwell on the earth, or why is it the great tribulation? Well, let's find out and ask God to bless the rest of our time together tonight. Father, we are again so thankful for your word. We thank you that you have told us even these hard and horrid things in advance. And Lord, I pray that the outcome of our evening is not just a, a, a gathering of information, a better understanding of what's going to happen during the tribulation. Lord, I pray that what will be yielded from tonight is a desperation for those around us who are dying without you. 
And Lord, that because of what we read tonight, that we would do any and all things that we possibly can do to rescue those who are drawn towards death. Bring us to that end through our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, three things I want to point out about the tribulation period that we're not going through. Amen. The first thing is this. The great tribulation will be a time of unprecedented lawlessness. The great tribulation will be a time of unprecedented lawlessness. Now, think about the titles of the Antichrist or the beast of Revelation 13. One of them is the lawless one. And the lawless one cannot lead the world into anything except lawlessness. And in Matthew 24, about this same time period, Jesus said this in 12 to 14. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. The natural affection of one for another will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Multitudes of people will be saved during the tribulation. Somebody asked the question at the conference over the weekend, uh, how can you say the church isn't going to be here when Revelation tells us that the, uh, the, the beast and false prophet have the opportunity to overcome the saints? Well, saints isn't a term that's exclusive to the church. There's Old Testament saints, there's the church who are saints, and there are tribulation saints. So people are going to be saved during the tribulation. I highly recommend that you do so now. Skip the whole tribulation thing. Amen? And we're told this by Jesus, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, let's do a little bit of housekeeping here since we have this in front of us. There are many people today who, some tongue-in-cheek, some seriously, have said we need to make sure we tell everybody about Jesus so the whole world will hear and the rapture can happen. Listen, what Jesus said has nothing to do with the rapture. As a matter of fact, it's going to be fulfilled not by humans. It's going to be fulfilled by an angel flying in the meridian or the high point in the sky during the tribulation, preaching the everlasting gospel to every creature. It is then and only then that the whole world is going to have heard the gospel. It won't be through our efforts, though we should see that as a goal, to tell everybody we know about Jesus. Amen? Amen. So what does unprecedented lawlessness look like during the tribulation. Well, again, in the Olivet Discourse, in Luke's rec uh, recording of it in 21, 16 to 7, 17, Luke writes this, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. Isn't that the love of many growing cold? Yeah. And they will put some of you to what? Yeah. Death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, that's true of us right now, but it's especially true during the tribulation. We'll see how that's manifested in a moment. Now back into Revelation 6, 3-4, we're told when he, Jesus, opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. And another horse, this is after the, the white horse with the covenant-bearing rider, another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Now, this is one of the reasons the rider on the first horse cannot be Jesus. If Jesus brings peace, nobody can take it away. The second rider can't take the peace that Jesus is going to bring. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, listen carefully. If the tribulation is near, and remember, it's preceded by the rapture. If the tribulation is near, then we would expect to see a global disregard for human life. There would also have to be selfish people in power who hoard money and supplies while their own people starve. And that we would see under the writer of the third horse. Now in Revelation 13, 15, we're told he was granted uh, power to give breath to the image of the beast. The second beast was given power to grant breath to the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be what? Killed. Is that not lawlessness? Is that not an unprecedented level of lawlessness? Because of who you don't worship, you pay with your life. And then looking, and we're going to repeat some of these verses here tonight because there's remain to what we're talking about. Revelation 6, 9 to 11 says, And when he opened the fifth seal... 
I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for what? For the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be what? Killed as they were, was completed. Now, Revelation 7 goes on to describe this group that John just recorded as a numberless multitude that no man could number from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. In other words, unprecedented lawlessness will be global, and people will have such little regard for life that they will kill anyone who doesn't think like them. Now, I want you to consider that there are calls all over the world right now to punish the unvaccinated, to restrict them, to not allow them to go to work do not allow them into any public facilities. There is no regard for people with naturally acquired antibodies like we've been talking about. The same exact antibodies that the mRNA vaccines are telling your body to make. They want you to come under their rule. Now this is preparing the world for the ultimate period of lawlessness where killing those who buck the system is going to be part of the unprecedented time of the Great Tribulation. Now, 1315 of Revelation, we're told again, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that it could both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image to be killed. Now, we're moving quickly in that direction. And you know what that means? Our redemption is nigh. Keep looking up. The Lord's coming for his church. Now... You see, that's why the Bible is always peppering good news into these heavy topics. Just to remember that we're not going to go through any of this. But it should, as we said and prayed, create a sense of desperation for those around us who are perishing because they far outnumber us. Now, the second thing we need to know about the Great Tribulation that makes it great and terrible is this. Listen, we already read this a moment ago, but it is our point. We'll read it again in a second. The great tribulation will avenge the blood of the righteous on a Christ-rejecting world. The great tribulation will avenge the blood of the righteous on a Christ-rejecting world. Now we're told in Romans 12, 9, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will what? I will repay. Says who? Says the Lord. And again, 6, 9 to 10 of Revelation, under the uh, altar, the souls that we just talked about a moment ago. How long, O Lord, is their cry? Is their prayer? Are people thinking that today? How long, God, are you going to let this go on? How evil are you going to allow our world to get? How much more are your people going to be oppressed? You know, there are groups today, I just uh, reported on an uh, article the other day from uh, Portland, Oregon where there are Antifa groups that are breaking up outdoor church services. They're breaking up their uh, worship equipment, they're smashing their guitars and their djembes and other percussion instruments, and they're punching and kicking people and pepper spraying them for meeting publicly in a park to worship Jesus. That's going on in the United States right now. It just happened a week ago Sunday. And interesting, I put this on my Telegram channel, and somebody commented on there and said, I live in Portland. That's nothing new. It happens all the time. Are people turning against the church today? Is there a hatred for the church today? You know, there's a movement going on, and, and pardon me, I don't mean this to be offensive, but it says, give the middle finger to the church. There's a movement going on where people are taking a picture putting their middle finger up and addressing that to the church. Jesus said we will be hated by all for his name's sake. It's happening all around us. Now, when the fourth seal was opened in Revelation 6 and 8, the fourth living creature said, Come and see. And he saw a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given over uh, to them over a fourth of the earth, a quarter of the earth, to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. 
Revelation 9, 13 to 21, when the sixth angel sounded, John said, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year were released to kill how many? A third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, brimstone. But by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, listen. Who, was not killed, who were not killed by these plagues, did not what? Repent. Repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which would neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their what? Murders and sorceries or their sexual immorality or thefts. Now, let me just pause here for a moment. There's a lot of things that kind of get jumbled up when you're studying Revelation in Revelation 16, we're told about the kings of the east and the dried up uh, Euphrates River. And some say that that represents China. And, and they, because they boasted, I think it was in 1986, that they could field an army of 200 million. Listen, Revelation 9 and Revelation 16 are two completely different things. And they are totally unrelated to one another. They are different judgments, different periods of time during the tribulation. Now, since we know that the time that precedes the rapture will be like the days of Noah, where the righteous were few in number, that means between the two things we just read, through the pale horse and the pale rider, so to speak, and it's not Clint Eastwood, but the pale rider, any, oh, Mike's seen the movie, none of you have seen Pale Rider? Come on, what about Josie Wales? Have you seen Josie Wales? I mean, come on. Classic movies, right? I guess not. Well, I like them. Between those two, a quarter of the Earth's population dying under the Pale Rider, and then through this army of 200 million killing another third of the Earth, that means within a very, very brief time period, 4.5 billion people on the planet are going to die. 4.5 billion people are going to die in a matter, most likely, of months. Things will be so bad on the earth that the earth dwellers will call on the rocks and the mountains to hide them from God's wrath. Hide us from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, that's pretty radical, right? Gets worse. Revelation 8-7 says, The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown down to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. This followed, is followed by what appears to be an asteroid strike, a great mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea that burns up a third of the trees and all the earth's green grass and destroys a third of the ships of the sea. After that, a comet strikes and poisons the world's fresh water supply and kills many. Many other cataclysmic things happen, but the most significant thing about what follows the things we've read is it's going to get worse and worse and worse when the seven bowls of God's undiluted wrath are poured out. And that's what we read earlier in Revelation 15. John saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is fulfilled or brought to completion as Daniel was foretold. Now, the last seven plagues are foul and loathsome sores on anyone who had the mark. In other words, the mark is somehow going to infect them and uh, present sores on their bodies. After that happens, the sea is going to turn into blood. Get this, it's going to kill everything in the ocean. Everything. Everything in the sea will die. Next, the fresh water of the earth turns to blood, accompanied by the declaration, you killed the saints and the prophet, showing you're bloodthirsty. Well, here you go. Now you have blood to drink. Now, after that, the sun is given power to scorch men's bodies. Most likely, this is a, a geomagnetic storm, like a class 5 uh, uh, solar flare. 
and uh, it's going to rain down negatively charged ions on people and burn their bodies uh, with radiation. And it symbolizes radiation poisoning. Listen, it's not going to be some kind of uh, pulsar or, or exploding star or anything like that. Uh, it's not going to be anything that a star would actually do to our planet. It would simply disintegrate our planet. But it is going to be men's bodies scorched with radioactivity, followed by a darkness on the kingdom of the beast. And this darkness is described as so painful that people are going to gnaw their tongues. And yet, what do we find in Revelation 16, 11? They blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not what? Did not repent of their deeds. After this, as we mentioned a moment ago, the Euphrates River is dried up, preparing a way for the kings of the east to enter the valley of Megiddo to fight against the Lord and his armies. And then finally we're told in Revelation 16, 18, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. This is a repeated scene in the heavenly. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now our subject is pretty heavy. But I want you to think about this. We're just reading it. This is real. People are going to go through all of these things. Every person who misses the, misses the rapture is going to experience this. If they survive, what happens after the rapture? You know, we've all seen the movies of planes falling out of the sky and cars crashing. Well, that's not a joke. If a Christian is raptured from behind the wheel of his car, what's the car going to do? Pull over by itself? No, people are going to get killed at the point of the rapture of the church, right? Has to be so. Because there's Christians all around the world in every walk of life and in every vocation. This is a time like the world has never seen. And God is going to do what the saints for thousands of years called upon him to do. And that is, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood on the earth? And this is part of what God is doing, especially in relation to the nation of Israel. Now, what about Dan? You guys still here? What about Daniel's people in Holy City in the 70th week? What happens to the Jews in the midst of all this? Well, here's our answer. Here's the third observation tonight. The Great Tribulation will cause millions of Jews to acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord. The Great Tribulation will cause millions of Jews to acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, there's some 16 million Jews on the planet. Keep that figure in mind right now. Now, there's a lot of talk in Israel today about the Messiah, the Mashiach. And there were messianic statements made during Donald Trump's uh, time as presidency based on his move of the embassy to Jerusalem and his recognition of the Golan as well as Judea and Samaria as Israeli territory. There are rabbis who are saying today, one even went as far to say he's met with the Messiah. Well, if his name wasn't Yeshua, you didn't meet the Messiah. Amen? There are rabbis who say the messianic age is near. Other rabbis say the messianic age is here. And Messiah is about to come. Yet we know the one they're going to follow, at least for a time, is not Christ, but he is the instead of Christ. That's what Antichrist means, instead of or against Christ. And the Jews for a time and all the earth dwellers are going to follow after him. Now, here's some interesting insight from Revelation 13. <clears throat> 1 to 5, we're told, John speaking, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like a mouth of the lion. This is uh, basically a relationship with the Daniel 7 and 8 visions. The dragon gave him his power. He's going to have authority over all those previous regions. His throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads, that if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was what? Healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Here Jesus comes up from the grave. He's seen by 500 people simultaneously, met with others, walked through walls, ate food. He was seen all over the place. Did all the world go after him? No. But here this phony healing takes place. His supposed deadly wound was healed. And the world marvels and follows the beast. So they worshipped who? Who is the dragon? Satan. 
The world is filled with Satan worshipers during the tribulation. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for how long? 42 months, half the tribulation. This is the one who makes a covenant with Israel for one week or a seven-year period. Now, remembering this is the 70th week of Daniel, and it pertains, therefore, to Daniel's people and the holy city, we have to look at what is written here through the lens of the Jews. Now, the sea in Hebraic language and writings commonly refers to the Mediterranean and just day-to-day -day conversation, uh, Hebrew, conversational Hebrew as well. The sea would be a reference to the Mediterranean. Figuratively, the sea represents non-Jewish nations. The land, which the second beast comes from, is figuratively, figuratively used for the nation of Israel. God made a covenant with the people and with the land, right? Now, from this, some have proposed that the first beast is a Gentile. Some see him as likely being Greek because Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC was Greek and he committed an abomination of desolation, not the abomination of desolation, but an abomination of desolation by slaughtering a pig on the altar in the most holy place. And um, that may be, may not be, uh, but I'm not going to be finding out because I'm going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And hopefully you are too. Amen. Now, because the land represents Israel, some believe that the false prophet would actually be a Jew. Now, a lot of people make a, uh, quite a bit over, you know, uh, a reference to uh, the Assyrian and saying, you know, the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim. Uh, I can promise you uh, that there will be no Jew who ever worships a Muslim uh, deity. That's not going to happen. So the Antichrist will not be a Muslim. Uh, radical Islam is going to be completely decimated during the Ezekiel War scenario. Uh, all the nations that are represented there represent 95% of extremist Islam, and God is going to wipe them out, kill five-sixths of the invading armies, and lay them dead on the mountains uh, around Israel. And it will take seven months to bury the dead and seven years to burn the weapons. Now, he won't be a Muslim. Hello? Now, either way, the first beast is the covenant maker and the covenant breaker with Israel. The duration of his authority is 42 months or half of the tribulation. Now, we're told in Zechariah 12, 8 to 10, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. Was David a great warrior? So that means even the weak will be a warrior like David during the tribulation. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. There's Daniel's people and city. The spirit of grace and supplication then, verse 10. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, the phrase in that day is exclusively pointing to the tribulation period in Zechariah, especially in verses or chapters 12 to 14, where you'll find that phrase used 16 times. It refers to the time of Jacob's trouble. During the time of Jacob's trouble, the Lord is going to fight against those who fight against Jerusalem, and he's going to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication on the Jews. Now, this results in the remnant of surviving Jews looking to Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah and mourning the actions of their ancestors and their own rejection of him. That's what it means when they mourn for him as one mourns for the loss of a firstborn child. Now in Revelation, in Romans 11, 25, 27, we're told, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of where? Zion. And he will turn away ungodliness from who? Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, the time of the Gentiles began 
in 586 BC at the Babylonian captivity, and it will end with the rapture of the church, which is followed by the 70th week of Daniel. Now, there are those today who teach what's called dual covenant theology, which is the belief that the Jews are saved through keeping the law and Gentiles are saved by grace through faith. Now, the extreme view is that Jews are simply saved because they are Jews, whether they keep the law or not. Now, the first of the many problems with that is that all the apostles and early church fathers, or nearly all of them, were Jews. And they were all born again. And spiritually, they weren't referred to as Jews. What did we find in Galatians? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. They're referred to as Christians, not Jews. Jesus told Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, you must be what? Born again. So if you have to be born again to be saved, and Paul says in Romans, all Israel will be saved, that means they have to be born again, right? Yes. Now in Zechariah 13, 8 to 9, we find our answer. It shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it, two-thirds of the Jews in it, shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring one-third through the fire, the time of the tribulation, will refine them as silver is refined, refine them by fire, and test them as gold is tested, tested by fire. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people, and each one will say what? The Lord is my God. Listen, two-thirds of the Jews are going to die during the tribulation, and they will die in unbelief. One-third of the Jews are going to look upon the one whom they pierced and mourn for having done so, and they will be supernaturally protected by God throughout the tribulation, just as God made a difference between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel between the third and fourth plague and all the plagues that followed uh, when God was punishing the Egyptians and specifically Pharaoh for not letting God's people worship him, go and worship him like instructed. Now, the end result is going to be this third of surviving Jews. If there's 16 million, that means 5.3 million are going to be saved at the end of the tribulation period or somewhere around there. Now, Romans 10, 8 to 13 also says, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There is no separate covenant that saves the Jew. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a quote from Joel chapter 2, verse 32. And Paul connects it with the Lord Jesus. There's only one way to be saved. Amen. And it's through calling on the name of the Lord, the name that is above all others, the name at which every knee will bow and confess that he is the Lord. What finally opens the eyes of a third of the Jews to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was and is indeed their Messiah? The Great Tribulation and God's protection of them through it. Now, let's end after all that on a happy note. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. Now, John said, I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, different rider from Revelation 6, 2. And he who sat on him was called what? Faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, meaning he has eyes of justice. And on his head were many crowns. He's the ultimate authority. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, symbolic of his actions during the tribulation. Who is it? His name is called what? The Word of God. Did you know you're in the Bible? If you're a born-again Christian, you're in the Bible. It's right here. And the army's in heaven, clothed in fine linen. If you back up to verse 9, you'll see that the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. that has to apply to us. Fine linen, white and clean, followed him on what? White horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, 
and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I love this description here. Medieval warriors would on their coat of mail or their robe and on their thigh have the crest of the army that they were fighting for. And what's it say on Jesus? King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes in full battle array and garments and he strikes the earth and then he begins to rule the nations. This is when Israel will look upon the one whom they pierced and mourn. When Jesus returns to the earth with the church to bring to an end time where people will know God is judging them, yet be so lawless and morally corrupt they would not repent, but rather cry out to rocks and mountains to hide them rather than turn to the true and living God. It's a time during which there'll be the largest awakening of the spiritually dead in the history of the world, even in the midst of unprecedented lawlessness. Now listen, that ought to give us hope today, as ugly as things are, as weird as things are. Listen, if God can save a numberless multitude during a time period of unprecedented lawlessness, he can save people right now. So we can't just sit back and wait for the rapture. I think today would be a good day for it. Amen? But we can't just sit around and wait for it. We have things to do. We need to be out there preaching Christ and him crucified. Amen? Now, I hope, as I said, the end result is that we have a greater burden for people around us because we wouldn't want anybody to go through this. It's a hideous time. It's a time that Jesus said, if I didn't come back, it would kill every single person on the face of the planet. We've seen how and what's going on, right? A matter of months, 4.5 billion people are going to die. In a matter of months, that's just an unbelievable figure. So listen, as we have opportunity today, we need to be reaching out to people because this is real. There's nothing allegorical or figurative about it. It is real. It is a detailed description of life on earth when the church is gone and God deals with Israel for the final time and completes their discipline and avenges the blood of the saints and the prophets on the earth and those who persecuted them and the Jews. I don't want to have anything to do with either half of the tribulation. And I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy either. So let's pray together as we close. Father, again, we're thankful for this information as heavy and, and intimidating as it is. But Lord, we thank you most of all that we as your bride, as your church, do not have an appointment with these things. So Lord, may we strive to reach others in these last days like never before as we see the reality of what the earth is going to be like when the church is gone. And when you cease restraining the efforts of the lawless one to advance his kingdom. So Lord, I pray once again that you would supernaturally infuse us with a burden by your spirit for those who are perishing around us. Lord, we need your help in this for there's so much going on. It's easy to be discouraged in these last days and disheartened. But help us, Lord, to keep our focus upward to the high call of God in Christ Jesus, knowing that our redemption is near. We thank you for our time together tonight. We pray your blessings on us this week. We pray for all those who are battling COVID in this church and elsewhere, God. We just pray your hand of healing be upon them instantly and permanently. We pray that your hand of protection be over the rest of us. We give you thanks for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.